Thank, Thank you so much, much worship team. Thank you, Dan. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll continue looking at what Paul has to say in this letter. 1 Corinthians 14. In this book, Paul addresses some concerns that he's heard about because of things going on in the church at Corinth. But he also answers questions that they ask him. And one of those questions that they ask had to do with spiritual gifts. And if you look back at chapter 12, verse 1 actually says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And chapter 12 and 13 and 14 are Paul's answer to the questions that they ask him about spiritual gifts. And obviously, 1 Corinthians 13, a very famous passage that's often used at weddings and other occasions. And verse 13, last verse in chapter 13 says, But now faith, hope, love, by these three, but the greatest of these is love. And um, one of the things that stood out to me as I've read the Bible over the years and studied the scriptures over the years is that uh, over and over in the New Testament there are uh, places where faith is talked about, hope is talked about, and love is talked about. And oftentimes they're paired together, sometimes all three, sometimes two at a time, sometimes just one. But I believe it's true, as uh, different people have said, that you can ultimately uh, look at what your Bible says and realize that it is calling us to faith and hope and love. And at the heart of our faith is a trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and for the gift of eternal life. And that's why we talk about resting in Jesus, resting in what he's done for us that we might be accepted by God. Hope has to do with all that God has promised us because of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we live our Christian lives, once we've received Jesus, we're to live that life based on what God has promised us, that he's promised us all that we need, all that we desire, ultimately in heaven, but to some degree, even in this life, he blesses us, he meets our needs, and he calls us to trust him, to trust his promises. And it's really those two things, faith and hope, that fuel our love, that enable us to let go of our money, to let go of our time, to let go of our energy and resources to serve other people, to love other people. Because we recognize that God has promised to meet all of our needs, therefore we're free to meet the needs of others. And God uses us to meet the needs of others. And so that's why Paul, at the very beginning of chapter 14, says, pursue love. Because the Corinthians, in the way they were exercising spiritual gifts, were not doing that. They weren't loving each other. They were valuing some gifts more than they should, or in an inappropriate ways and they were trying to glorify themselves through the exercise of their spiritual gift. They really weren't pursuing love. And so the Bible calls us to basically ask the question, when I come to church, am I pursuing love when I come to church? When I go to my job, am I pursuing love when I go to my job? When I interact with my neighbors, am I pursuing love? In my marriage or with my kids, am I pursuing love? Is that really the goal that, that I have in mind? And that I pray for grace and wisdom to know what that love looks like. But what Paul does in chapter 14 is he tells us what love should look like for the Corinthian church in their worship service in light of spiritual gifts. And so what I'd like to do is we're 
up, up to, to verse 20, and I'd like to simply read verses 20 through 25 tonight and focus on that, because what we're trying to do is trying, trying to think through what Paul is saying about love, about spiritual gifts, and about how all of that plays out in a very practical thing like a worship service. And for some of us here, we might say, um, I'm sure that's important, but I've got a lot going on in my life, and I'm not sure that's right at the top of my list to think about how love factors into a worship service. Depending on where we are, that may not be the uh, most important thing on our minds right now. We might be thinking about other things. But it's also important to realize what Paul is talking about here with regard to spiritual gifts in light of how they functioned in the New Testament. It has something to say to us and some application for our decision making in every situation, whether it's in a worship service or just in our daily lives. And so it's very practical, regardless of what your, uh, your concern might be. So hopefully we can all listen from that perspective. So if you would, read with me, beginning in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church excuse me, assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Let's pray again. Father, we just pray uh, for our hearts. We pray for our bodies that you'd strengthen us at this hour to listen closely and carefully and help us to see how this applies to our lives uh, day in and day out in all kinds of ways, as well as how it applies uh, in our church and when we worship. And so we just thank you for your word. And we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the interesting things is, obviously it's raining tonight. It's supposed to rain quite a bit tonight in the next couple of days. And when we talk about spiritual gifts, one of the most controversial things in our day and time is the issue of the charismatic movement, which uh, the whole word charismatic is connected to words that are related to spiritual gifts. It's about uh, how certain people emphasize certain spiritual gifts, especially gifts like prophecy and tongues, uh, which Paul is talking about in these chapters. And there's a movement that's related to the charismatic movement. It's a part of it, I guess you could say, called the Latter Rain Movement. And so in thinking about tonight and wondering uh, if we're going to get flooded tonight with the rain, I thought about the fact that there is a charismatic movement of, of sorts or a Pentecostal movement, however you want to call it, called the Latter Rain Movement. And one of the things that the Latter Rain Movement seeks to do is to... Uh, promote the idea that 
there was Pentecost right after Jesus ascended to heaven and that God has promised that one day there's going to be another Pentecost of sorts where there's going to be a rise of new apostles and new prophets just like in the first century. And there are different groups that have embraced this idea. Um, the new apostolic um, reformation, that's right, uh, embraces that sort of thing. And so there are different groups that emphasize that. And so it, it raises the question, what are we to do with what Paul says in these chapters on prophecy and tongues, and how does it relate to us today? Well, we've already looked at verse 1 and emphasized the fact that he's basically saying, this is what I want to make sure that you have in mind when you gather for worship, that you're pursuing love. Secondly, in verses 1 through 5, he highlights the fact that when you come together to worship and you're exercising these gifts of tongues and prophecy, your goal should be not to impress people, but to bless people, to edify them, to build them up in faith and in hope and in love. The next section makes it uh, clear, you could say, that in order to edify someone, you have to be clear in terms of your speech. You, they have to know what you're saying. Um, if you're speaking in a tongue in a worship service and they don't know what you're saying, then they can't be edified and built up because it's the understanding of the truth of God, the promises of God, what he tells us to do in, in order to love that builds us up in faith and hope and love. And so Paul emphasizes uh, for many, many verses how important it is to be clear. And then these verses that we're looking at tonight highlight the fact that Paul is trying to help them to see that their understanding of how tongues and prophecy should be applied in the worship service is very much connected to God's purpose for those gifts. And so love seeks to edify, it, it seeks to edify by being clear, and it seeks to edify through an understanding of what the purpose of these gifts are. And so that's what we want to talk about tonight uh, in light of these verses, because if we understand the purpose of the spiritual gifts, we can value them appropriately. And that was part of the problem in Corinth, is that they were valuing tongues greatly, because it seemed like such a strange and mystical and powerful thing they wanted to do it and they wanted to do it in the worship service and they thought it was impressive and exciting and yet Paul um, basically basically says but you need to understand better what really needs to happen in a worship service what the most important thing is in the worship service it's not um, powerful uh, expressions of giftings but it's the clear communication of the truth that's the most important thing that needs to take place in the worship of the church um, and so understanding the purpose of a gift is important uh, there's a i guess it's a now it's a cd i don't know or is a tape that we would often have listened to in the past at christmas time and it's uh it's by a, a country a Christian band in Colorado. They sing songs and they tell stories and about Chris, around Christmas time. And one of the stories they tell is how one of the uh, members of the band gave a Christmas gift to another member of the band. And the guy who received the gift was complaining because he said, 
now this guy is, now this is joking, but he said, this guy is so cheap, he gave me some uh, long-handled back scratchers for, for Christmas as a gift. And the guy says, so-and-so, those weren't long-handled back scratchers, those were salad tongs. <laughs> and so the guy received a gift, but he didn't really know what they were. He was actually misusing them. And that's the point that Paul is making here in this short passage, is that it really is important to know what the gift is, what the purpose of it is, and especially how it fits into what you're doing in your worship service. That's what Paul is concerned about in this portion of 1 Corinthians 14. And so in verse 20, he says, Brother, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So obviously he's saying the way you're approaching spiritual gifts is like a child. And he seems to be saying in the context that children are attracted to shiny, fun things. They're not necessarily attracted to the things that are less dynamic and, and spectacular. And so they can get bored with something that doesn't seem really engaging uh, but they're really attracted to the shiny, flashy things. Tongues was a very shiny, flashy thing. And he's saying you need to rethink how you're valuing these various gifts that God has given, especially how they're playing out when you get together for worship. He said in verse 21, in the law, reference to the whole Old Testament. In this case, Paul is quoting from 28. In the law, it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's an interesting verse, and a lot of people wrestle with what is um, Paul actually doing here, because he doesn't quote it exactly. He kind of gives it a, a paraphrase of sorts, and he applies it to what's going on in the church at Corinth. Uh, I'll just read for you what it says in Isaiah 28, which is uh, verses 9 through 13, is the passage from which Paul is actually quoting. Um, God is actually talking to the people who, in Israel, they are listening to the prophets. And so God is actually saying that he's going to send people to them that speak a language that they don't understand, namely the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so it says in Isaiah 28, to whom would he, God, teach knowledge, and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, for he says, order on order, order on line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he, speaking of God, will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here's repose. But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, here, a little there. Go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Speaking of the Assyrian ca uh, captivity, ultimately the Babylonian as well. And so Paul picks a passage in the Old Testament 
to apply to what's going on in the church at Corinth where they're elevating tongues, speaking in languages that no one really understands unless there's an interpreter, but evidently there wasn't much of that going on based on what Paul says. And so he applies this passage in which the people of Israel at the time had prophets speaking to them, but depending on how you interpret Isaiah 28, and that's another passage that's challenging to understand, um, there are other English translations, if you look at them, um, that are really amazing. There's where it talks about order on order, line on line. They actually translate it this way. For it is blah, blah upon blah, 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 blah upon blah, blah, gaga upon gaga, gaga upon gaga, a little here, a little there. Why is that? Why, why would any English translation translate that like that? Because evidently you could translate it that way in light of the fact that it appears that what being said there is that the uh, priests and others who are listening to what God is saying through his true prophets are basically saying um, to us what God is saying is this wah, 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 wah. It's, it's baby talk that we really don't even want to listen to. That's really the point, is that the way they were responding to God's true prophets it, for them, it was at best just, you know, God just keeps saying the same thing over and over again, just like a little baby repeating itself all the time. Or it's just like blah, 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 blah. This It's become a situation where, yeah, 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 we've heard that before. Yeah, 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 God says he's going to bring judgment. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so it got to a point where they really did not want to know and understand what God was saying. And so God said, therefore my judgment on you will be to send to you people you cannot understand. You refuse to understand, you refuse to seek to understand what I'm saying to you, therefore I'm going to send you those who are going to capture you and take you out of your land, those you can't understand, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So Paul seems to be saying to the Corinthians, you're wanting a worship service that's filled with people speaking things that no one understands. And you think that is some sort of high spiritual experience. But he says it's really more of a curse than a blessing. To not understand what's going on in a worship service is a negative thing, not a positive thing. And so he's making the point that God wants us to communicate clearly the truth of his word in the worship people to embrace it and to receive it. When you think about the function of tongues, it's, it's an interesting thing. On the one hand, obviously on uh, Pentecost, uh, the Spirit enabled um, people to speak in foreign languages and they heard the gospel in their language. And so it was a way of witness. And a lot of people, like Matthew Henry and others, would say that's even the case in this chapter, others would say uh, it appears that Paul's talking about something different. He's not talking about the function of witness as much as he's talking about the function of worship because he talks about speaking in tongues and giving thanks and uh, you're blessing well enough and that sort of thing and doing it privately and those kinds of things. So it seems that the gift of tongues in the first century could function as a, a way of witness 
but also a way of personal worship and could be a way of worship in the service if there was an interpreter so that people could understand what was going on. But there's also this other purpose of tongues that was also a means of judgment in the sense that there are those who understand what God is doing, especially on the day of Pentecost, is that the, the Jews had rejected their Savior. They had rejected Jesus. They had crucified Jesus. And so God sends people to speak in a foreign language, so to speak, in proclaiming the wonders of God. So part of it was to say to the children of Israel, that God, in a sense, is going to bring judgment on you for once again rejecting the word of God from the very lips of God himself in the person of Jesus. So you've got this sort of threefold function of tongues in the New Testament, which is very interesting, and, and that's why Paul could say in verse 2, so then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. sign to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Then he says in verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? So obviously, Paul is picturing a situation where uh, Christians are gathered together. You've got some people who are gifted um, in speaking in tongues, some aren't, and there are some unbelievers there. And uh, he's highlighting the fact that if everybody's speaking in tongues all at once at the same time, and I've actually been in services like that, even today it still happens in different places. And he's saying, don't you think those who are not gifted uh, and, and certainly unbelievers are going to think there's actually something wrong, not something really right going on if everybody's doing that at the same time? He says, rather you should that the most important gift that needs to be exercised is worship service. Later on, he's going to give some guidelines for exercising the gift of tongues in the worship service. But here he's emphasizing that really the gift of prophecy, which is the proclamation of the truth and revelation of God, is what is most important in the worship service. So he says in verse 24, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is all. he is called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That verse right there is a reminder of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and, and intentions of the heart. So Paul is saying that what needs to happen in a worship service is that people need to be changed. Um, believers need to grow, and un unbelievers need to come to faith in Christ. And it's not going to happen if they, neither, in either case, Believers aren't going to grow, and unbelievers aren't going to come to faith if neither one of them can understand what is going on in the worship service, if it, things are being spoken in languages that they don't understand. And so he's highlighting the fact that it's really, really important that people understand 
God, that they might they that they might grow in faith and in love. And so to be said about that. Um, but basically, the bottom line is a lack of understanding may be a sign of judgment, not a sign of blessing. That's Paul's point, is that um, the true blessing of God is not doing something that, that is exciting and fun and flashy and, and makes people stand up and take notice and, and be impressed with you. The true blessing of God is when you walk out of a worship service and you understand the word of God. You understand the heart of God. You understand the truth about God. You understand the promises of God. You understand what he calls us to do in order to love our wives and love our husbands and love our children and love our co-workers. That's the true blessing of God is understanding that ultimately results in the renewing of our minds and therefore the transforming of our lives. And so Paul is trying to help the Corinthians see not that tongues, as they were gifted to exercise in the first century, were wrong, because he says, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, and I, and I speak in tongues more than any of you. But he was saying, you're not thinking right about their, their purpose, especially in the worship service, and you're not seeing the importance of the clear proclamation of the word of God in your gatherings. Jeremiah 9 was... Uh, there's a couple verses in this chapter that stood out to me as I thought about this. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises the loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So the Corinthians would say, I boast in the fact that I can speak in tongues and I can, I can exhibit a very uh, powerful and captivating gift. And Paul would say, don't boast in that, but boast that you understand and know God. That's really what is important. And so what I'd like to do with just a few minutes we have left is help us think a little bit about uh, some of the ways we can apply what we're talking about here when we're talking about Paul's dealing with spiritual gifts in the Corinthians church because um, I want it to be as practical as it can be uh, for us all. And one of the questions that I've, I guess I've answered maybe a little bit up to this point in working through this chapter, but I want to talk a little bit more about it, is the question, what should we think about what was going on? Paul is dealing here with the question of tongues and prophecy in the first century in the Corinthian church. As he describes those gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, he says primarily tongues is a man speaking to God in worship, which may or may not have an interpretation. And prophecy is actually um, men speaking to men on behalf and so he's talking about the importance of these gifts and how they relate. The question is, is what is happening today what was happening in the first century with regard to prophecy in tongues? 
And one thing I would say just to begin is in 1 Corinthians 12, if you look back at verses 4 through 7 and verse 11, Paul says, Now there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of, of effects with the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then in verse 11, he says, But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And so in those verses, Paul is emphasizing that all spiritual gifts are given by the same Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, and that he distributes them as he sees fit. He gives gifts as he determines to whom he wants to give them and when he wants to give them and how he wants to give them. I mentioned John Owen, the great Puritan, and um, the quote that I read earlier is, is a fascinating one because obviously the debate in our day and time is between what we call cessationists who believe that uh, prophecy and tongues and miracle working, like it was in the first century, no longer occur today. They have ceased. And then there's the continuationists or the non-cessationists who believe those gifts still continue today. They would say to some degree just like in the first century. What's fascinating to me is that John Owen uh, in this quote is both. If you listen carefully to what he says and he's one of the most respected Puritans, he said, although all these gifts and operations, speaking especially of the super, more supernatural ones like prophecy and tongues, although all these gifts and operations ceased in some respect, some of them absolutely and some of them as to the immediate manner of communication and degree of excellency. So in one sense, he's talking about the fact that there's a sense in which they get, these gifts have ceased Contrary to the new apostolic reformation, I would not say that there are any apostles today that speak like Peter and Paul. That gifting is not happening today like it was in the first century. And so he says, in some respects, the gifts in the first century have ceased. They're not continuing. But then he says, yet so far as the edification of the church was concerned in them, something that is analogous unto them was and is continued. So in one sense, he's a cessationist. In another sense, he's a continuationist. And what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is the same spirit in the first century as he is in the 21st century. And the Holy Spirit is still giving gifts as he sees fit. And there is still, even though he may not be gifting people to be apostles and gifting people to give fresh revelation that ought to be added to the Bible, he is still gifting his people in ways that are, as John Owen would say, analogous to, um, have a common thread with. And that's why the Puritans would often talk about the art of prophesying in talking about preaching. That anointed preaching was a kind of the, the ongoing gift of um, prophecy. And today you've got men like Wayne Gruden who would say, if you were to receive an impression, but you should tell somebody something, 
that God still gives impressions today, and those impressions are another way in which the gift of prophecy continues. And yet neither of those present-day giftings carry the same weight and authority as the gift of prophecy did in the first century. There's a common thread, um, but it isn't exactly the same. And I think that's what John Owen is talking about. And that's the way I look at it as well. I see the Holy Spirit gifting people with regard to prophecy and also with regard to tongues in some kind of common thread. J.I. Packer talks about the issue of tongues today. He says some interesting things. He says, um, it seems no less clear that as a devotional exercise, speaking in tongues enriches some, but he also says it's clear that for others it is considered a valueless irreverence, which kind of highlights the controversy over the whole thing. He says some who've practiced it, speaking of private prayer languages, have later testified to the spiritual um, unreality for them of what they were doing, while others who have begun it have recorded a vast deepening of their communion with God as a result. And there is no reason to doubt either testimony. So this private prayer language may help to free up and warm up some cerebral people, just as structured verbal prayer may help to steady up and shape up some emotional people. Those who know that speaking in tongues in this private prayer language or devotional tongues is not God's path for them, and for those whom it is a proven enrichment should neither try to impose their own way on others nor judge others inferior for being different, nor stagger if someone in their camp transfers to the other, believing that God has led him or her to do so. So there are theologians, Reformed theologians like um, J.I. Packer, who would say that there still is something today um, that continues that's similar to, even though it may not be exactly like what we find in the first century with regard to speaking in tongues. Um, and so I'll leave it at that. I mean, there's a lot of questions I might raise, but that is basically my perspective on that, is that um, the Holy Spirit was doing something in the first century to lay a foundation. And it include, included special revelation that he's not giving today. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit still isn't gifting believers in ways that still can be connected to the idea of the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on just briefly is when we talk about the whole, the whole idea of cessationism, where some people would say, no, tongues don't exist today, prophecy doesn't exist today, healing doesn't exist today, uh, as it was in the first century, and there's really no direct line of any kind of common thread today in the 21st century. A lot of people that hear them talk who believe just the opposite would say, so you mean the spirit doesn't work anymore. You believe God isn't at work doing supernatural things anymore. And that's very easy for people to come to that kind of conclusion. And I would say, regardless of what position you take on what these gifts look like today or whether they're exercised today or not, we should not come to the conclusion that the spirit isn't at work um, and that God still doesn't do some amazing things. 
uh, unexpected things. I think the difference is in the first century, God was doing some unique things that were, were in a sense, the norm. The unique and surprising and supernatural were the norm for a while. Now they're no longer the norm, but it doesn't mean God still isn't working in some pretty supernatural ways. And that's why a while back I shared a little bit with you about um, research they've done about how Muslims come to faith in Christ and how a large portion of Muslims come to Christ through dreams and their dreams about Jesus most of the time where Jesus is speaking to them and revealing himself as the Alpha and Omega and as the only way to be reconciled to God in, in one way or another, quoting scripture or just appealing to them in various ways. And so there's an article that I read that highlights for me what Isaiah 55 says when it says, God is speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Meaning that we have to be careful of going further than what the scripture says and putting God in a box that the scripture never puts him in, in terms of what God may or may not do in a situation. God may choose to work in a way that isn't normal, but doesn't violate his word either. And so you've got these situations in these Muslim countries where um, people are coming to Christ um, largely because many Muslims um, put a great deal of weight on dreams. And if they have a dream about Jesus, they don't take it lightly at all. And I'll just give you one illustration because my time is running out here. But there's this um, Persian migrant who evidently went to Greece. And so there were Persian pastors in Greece who were ministering to um, those from Iran that were in Greece. And this one, this migrant, had a dream in which he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, stand up and follow me. And the man having the dream said, who are you? And the man in white in his dream said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through me. So this man has this dream. He goes to this Persian pastor who relates the dream to him. And the pastor pulls out his Bible and turns to the book of Revelation and asks, have you ever seen this before? And he reads from the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the the end. And the Persian migrant begins to cry. And he says, how can I accept him? How could I follow him? And so the pastor shares the gospel with him and they pray together. The man immediately leaves uh, after receiving a Bible from the pastor, goes out, gets 10 other people and brings them back and says, all these guys want Bibles too. And the pastor had warned him and said, you know, if you take a Bible, um, you might be persecuted for it. And he said, I believe the Jesus that I've met is more powerful than anyone I might meet uh, in this country. The point I want to make is that ultimately, 
it wasn't just the dream that brought him to Jesus. There was more to it than that, but the dream was part of what God used in that circumstance. There was a need for a pastor, a need for the explanation of the gospel, and all those kinds of things, and all kinds of situations that seems to have happened. But there are Persian pastors who are dealing with people who are coming to them with dreams who say, you know, a lot of these guys are just um, wanting to be like everybody else. All these guys are standing up and saying they had a dream about Jesus and they're just mimicking what they've heard. Or they think that um, they will receive some sort of benefit if they have a dream story. And so these Persian pastors will say, you know what? The most important thing is that they read the Bible. And so regardless of whether or not they've had a dream or not, they need to read the Bible. In fact, one Persian pastor said, I get tired of all these dreams. These people need to read their Bible. So the point is that the dream thing can be abused. It can be elevated to the wrong place. But it doesn't mean that God can't use a dream to get someone's attention so that they can hear the gospel be open to the gospel, and be led to Christ. And so that's just one illustration of the fact that we have to be careful of just assuming that because that doesn't happen to people that we know, that God can't be doing that in other places where um, it's very difficult. And um, Bibles and Christians aren't very prevalent for various reasons. Well, let me conclude with this. Um, what is the primary ministry of the Spirit today? We kind of touched on this last time a little bit, and we'll talk more about this next time. But I just want to kind of remind you of what we said and introduce what we'll talk about next week. It's important to realize that the primary, primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to illumine what God has given to us, to help us understand it and to apply it, to believe it. In the first century, God was still giving revelation. He was still giving the Bible, so to speak. That revelation has been given to us, and now the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us to understand what's there and to really believe it, to see how it applies to our lives, our jobs, our families, and those kinds of things. But there are those Reformed theologians like John Murray who would say, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit often manifests itself in terms of what Dan was talking about. He said, I felt strongly that God was leading me to do, do what he did with them all, that, that God was actually doing that, that God was directly impressing him, uh, leading him to do that. And that, John Murray would say, is actually not a work of revelation, direct revelation or prophecy, but it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit actually helping us to walk out the Bible by leading us to live and act in light of the scriptures. And so that's why he said, and I'll close with this, as we are the subjects of the Spirit's illumination, illuminating the scriptures, and are responsive to it, and as the Holy Spirit is operative in us to the doing of God's will, the Holy Spirit's at work, he's teaching us the scriptures, he's helping us to understand it, he's working in us in light of that so that we can 
know and do god's will he says in light of all that spirits work in us through the word we will have feelings impressions convictions urges inhibitions hesitancies to do something uh, impulses burdens resolutions he says illumination and direction by the spirit through the word of god will focus themselves in our consciousness in all these ways and we should not think that they're necessarily irrational or fanatically mystical some people would go so far as to say uh no god's not doing that sort of thing anymore so there can be that extreme position that says no god's not really doing that but i would agree with john murray is that the work of the holy spirit through his word manifests itself in terms of being led impressed burdened restrained freed whatever it might be to do things that are actually consistent with what is right and wise in the light in light of the scriptures and so when paul is talking to the corinthians about the, the importance of clarity in the worship service the importance of prophecy in the worship service he's basically saying it's important for you to make pri- the priority in your life and in your worship service hearing and understanding and applying the word of god that's what's happening then exactly what is happening today but the application is still the same god wants us to understand his word he wants us to believe it he wants it to be clearly presented and he wants us to apply it to our lives and that's what the holy spirit is at work to do illuminating what we hear and we can pray that we would be appropriately open to the work of the holy spirit helping us to understand the scripture and to walk it out as he impresses us as he burdens us as he leads us as he um, maybe reminds us to pray for certain people praise for certain things or something is put on our heart the bible says that in different places god put things on people's heart the holy spirit still does those kinds of things and so don't believe god is giving fresh revelation there's nothing that we should be adding to the bible but god the holy spirit is working through the scriptures to move us to faith and hope and love in all kinds of ways and we'll talk more about this next time so let's pray father we thank you for your word we pray that somehow it would be encouraging to us as we try to understand what's going on in the church at corinth in the first century and what paul is dealing with there it can be very challenging sometimes to know exactly what the questions were they ask and what exactly he had to deal with and yet we pray that we would see that even though things aren't exactly the way they were in the first century now there are principles that we are still to follow there there's the work of the holy spirit through your word that is still um, going on in our, in our lives and we need to be aware of that and we need to understand how we're to walk by the spirit day by day in light of your word so please continue to teach us please continue to help us as we seek to keep in step with the spirit in obedience to your word in light of what is right and wise in our daily lives please encourage us that you are at work in our hearts you're at work in our lives and we can rejoice in that and trust you 
for what we need to lead us whatever we're going through and help us to pray for that leading and to trust you to do just that father we pray for anyone here isn't yet trusting you that you grant them faith in christ and that they would come to be able to completely and wholeheartedly rest in you lord jesus hope in you father for all that you've promised us and pursue love in light of what your word says prepare us now as we honor you in the lord's supper we thank you for this time Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.